Almighty God, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for being our Father, for being so good to us in so many ways. Father, we praise your majesty and your glory, and we pray that you will bless our study this morning. We're thankful for the book of Hebrews and all of the wonderful lessons we've learned from it. We pray, Father, that one of the main things we will take away from this book is a desire and a need to always draw close to you and your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my dear friends, believe it or not, but today we have reached the end of our journey. We have reached on this day the end of our studies throughout the book of Hebrews for the past few weeks. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews, and we have actually been able to cover the first 12 chapters. There are 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews, and we have studied 12 of those chapters. And on this journey, we've learned some just very critical lessons. The main lesson we've learned is is that when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is great. Jesus is superior. He is superior to angels. He is superior to the prophets and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and everything else that is found in the Old Testament. His covenant is also superior to the Old Covenant. It is a better covenant because it contains better promises. And our high priest Jesus serves in a better sanctuary And he also offered a better sacrifice. The point of the book of Hebrews, the theme of Hebrews, is that Jesus is greater. He is better, more superior to anything that is found under the old covenant. And then the third lesson we've also learned from this book is the proper way to respond to the superiority of Jesus is to live a life of faith, to walk by faith to finish in faith, to put our complete belief and trust in Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to make sure that as we travel through this life, we stay very close to Jesus. We never turn our backs against Jesus, that we always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because he is truly the only way to heaven. And so that's what we've learned so far in the first 12 chapters of this book. And as we conclude this this morning, let's read the first nine verses of Hebrews chapter 13. If you remember in the final few verses of chapter 12, in Hebrews 12, beginning with verse number 25 and going down to verse number 29, we find a warning from the Hebrew writer, a warning uh, about the consequences of leaving the covenant, and the blessings of Jesus. The Hebrew writer makes the point that if those under the old covenant were punished by God, then how much more severe severe do you think the punishment is going to be for us if we leave Jesus? 
I mean, if they experienced a severe punishment under the old covenant for violating that law given through Moses, then we certainly under the new covenant will experience a very severe punishment. In fact, the chapter concludes there by referring to God as a consuming fire. Because God is a consuming fire, because God will punish us severely in the next life if we reject the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice of his son. Then if you remember in verse number 28, he says that we need to make sure that we show gratitude, that we offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. You see, the proper way to respond to the superiority of Jesus is to make sure that we revere him, stand in awe of him, and show him gratitude and acceptable service. That's what the Hebrew writer says at the conclusion of chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, he will give us some practical exhortations of how to do that, of how to show God gratitude and reverence and acceptable service. And so the final exhortations of the book of Hebrews begins with these words. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, though through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Okay. This book wraps up with several practical exhortations to these Hebrew Christians. And the first thought the writer wants to leave them with after emphasizing the superiority of Jesus is he, is he, is, is he emphasizes and tells them that the proper way to respond to the superiority of Jesus is, number one, you need to let the love of the brethren continue. Let the love of the brethren continue. As the Hebrew writer begins this section of exhortations, he talks about the need for Christians to love each other. We need to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm pretty sure that you are aware that the topic of love for the brethren is one of the big topics of the New Testament. It is a topic that is stressed and focused upon over and over again. And you're also probably aware of the fact that the kind of love the Bible speaks of most of the time comes from the Greek word agape, the agape kind of love, the kind of sacrificial love like God had towards us, uh, towards us a love where we are to love one another 
more than we love ourselves, a love that involves action, a love that goes beyond just expressing it in words, but it also involves me doing something, doing something good towards you to demonstrate my love for you. The Bible says that God expects us to love one another. You know, next on next Wednesday or this coming Wednesday, we're going to begin some studies in the book of 1 John. And the book, the book of 1 John, John is one of the great books about love. It speaks continually about the love that Christians are to have for one another. Jesus spoke about this constantly throughout his ministry. One of the big things that Jesus wants for his people is for them to love each other. Love one another includes not only us helping one another and looking out for one another at all times, especially during during the tough times, but it also involves us having the courage to go to one another and point out sin in each other's lives if we, if we notice that, if you notice that I am harboring a sin in my life, if you really love me, you'll come to me in love and you'll point that sin out. You'll help me get back on the right track because you want me to go to heaven. You see, love for the brethren includes not just nice and warm and, and fuzzy feelings, but it also involves us doing things for each other, even when that may be tough. We have to love each other. We got to help each other as we go as we try to go to heaven together. And the fact that the writer uses the word continue here, he says, let the love for the brethren continue. That shows me, and hopefully that shows you, that these Christians were already doing that. They were already loving one another properly, but the Hebrew writer says, you need to make sure you continue in that. Don't stop it. You're doing a good job right now when it comes to loving each other, but this is something you must continually do. You got to challenge yourself and excel constantly in your love for your brothers and sisters. Why? Because we're a family. We've all been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are a family. We're going to go to heaven together. And if we can't love each other properly on this earth, then how can we expect to spend eternity and love one another properly in heaven? We must love each other. You know, unfortunately, many of the problems that exist in local churches around this country and around the globe are a result of a lack of doing what this simple verse says. So often churches split and they are divided and have all kinds of turmoil and problems because the brethren who make up those churches don't love one another. They allow petty fusses about the color of carpets and the color of walls and, and, and this or that, just very petty issues in the big scheme of things. They allow those things to destroy their work together. They allow the devil to creep into their hearts and, and fill their hearts with pride and, and, and ego. So often as, as Christians, we fall into the trap of loving ourselves and loving our own personal agenda instead of loving one another and putting the interests of one another even beyond our own personal interest. If more Christians practice what this simple verse says, then maybe we wouldn't have so many problems in local churches. Maybe there wouldn't be so much division and churches wouldn't split as often as they do. So often churches have problems, many problems, because of a lack of love 
for one another, a lack of love for the elders, a lack of love for the preacher, a lack of love just for each other as a spiritual family. Love is the key to so many of our problems. But then a second thing the writer points out in verse 2 is in addition to loving each other, he says we also need to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. We don't need to neglect showing hospitality. And I like that word, strangers. He doesn't just talk about the people we may know, but when he mentions strangers here, he's talking about showing hospitality to people we may not know. People we may not be as familiar with on a personal level. It reminds me of something Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Peter says that as Christians, we are to be hospitable towards one another without complaint. You see, my friends, just like love was a big part of Christianity in the first century, so was hospitality. Those two things are closely connected. Christians are to have love in their hearts, and they also are to be hospitable. You know, so often when we talk about hospitality, we say, well, that is a qualification for a man to become an elder. And that's true. Being hospitable is a qualification for a man to become an elder. But notice how God doesn't require elders to, to have a quality or a trait that every Christian isn't also to have. Every Christian is to be hospitable. Every Christian is to, to be willing to, to open up their homes to, to strangers. That's what the scripture says. And, and why does the Hebrew writer mention that here? Well, remember what the Christians were going through at this time. Remember during this time, and I hold the belief that this book was written prior to 70 AD, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. During this time, there was a great persecution going against the church. When you read Acts chapter 8 and really continue on throughout the book of Acts, you find Christians being persecuted continually. You find the church in Jerusalem being forced to scatter throughout the region. They're scattered throughout the entire Roman Empire, and the brethren needed to be hospitable towards one another during this time of persecution. Due to the severe persecution that was taking place by the hands of the Jewish people and later the Romans, and due to the fact that inns at this time, we would refer to them as hotels, but inns at this time were known to be very expensive. And in some cases, they were also known to be very unsafe due to all these factors for most of the brethren who were being persecuted and forced to flee and scatter from their homes because of their faith, it would be better for them to have spent time in the homes of their brethren instead of being in an inn. It was very important that the Christians looked out for one another during this time of persecution. In fact, one of the motivations for this kind of attitude that the Christians were to have at this time is found in the second part of verse number two. Notice again, he says, do not neglect, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to Christians, to brethren. You may not know as well, but they are fleeing for their lives. They're being persecuted for their faith. Don't neglect to be hospitable to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. You know, so often... And I'll just say this about this, this passage. 
So often when we read this verse, so often when people read this verse, they ask this question. I can't begin, begin to tell you how many times I've had this question asked to me, and that is, is this happening today? I mean, could if I open up my home to somebody, is it possible that that person is a spiritual being, that that person is an angel? So often people wonder, is the Hebrew writer talking in a literal sense in this verse? And there are answers, all kind of answers people may give to that, and there may be a view you may have about that personally, but I want to suggest this for now. I want to suggest that while trying to answer that question can lead to some interesting discussions, it can be an interesting discussion for us to have, I think regardless of what view you hold on that, answering that particular question totally deviates from the main point the writer's trying to make. The reason the writer even made that comment there is not because he's trying to get us to have a discussion about whether or not angels are roaming the earth as humans. That's not the point. The point he is trying to emphasize here is as Christians, we need to be hospitable. We need to be hospitable towards one another. We need to be hospitable towards, towards those in need because we never know who we might bless. We never know who we might be helping when we allow them to come into our homes. You know, when I think about this verse, and maybe you thought of this also, my mind immediately goes to Abraham in the Old Testament. Did your mind go to Abraham? Remember in Genesis chapter 18, and the writer may be alluding to that here. He may be doing that. But in Genesis chapter 18, remember Abraham, he was hospitable to some men who were traveling through his area, he let them in his home, he made a meal for them, he tried to take care of them, and he was unaware that the men he was showing hospitality to, they were angels. They were actually angels sent from heaven, and they were on their way to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had no idea that he was entertaining angels. He had no idea that he was actually ministering to messengers and servants of God. And so there, the Hebrew writer may be just trying to emphasize his point by talking or, or bringing up this situation with Abraham, but let me throw another thing out for you just to think about, okay? This may also prove the point. You know, so often when we see that word angel in the New Testament, we think of these heavenly beings, these majestic beings who at time appeared as humans on the earth. We can read about that all throughout the New Testament. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, and in some cases, maybe even the New, but I know it's found continually in the Scripture. I think we agree on that. And, and, and while angel, the word angels can refer to those heavenly beings, we need to also understand that the Greek word for angel actually just means messenger. And sometimes it can be used in the scripture to refer to this, the heavenly beings who have been sent from heaven. But other times it can be just used to talk about a preacher, a messenger of God's word. And that may also be what the Hebrew writer is talking about here. He may also be making the point that there have been some Christians who when they were hospitable to all of their brethren, at times they were unaware that they were actually helping 
messengers. They were actually helping preachers, men who were spreading the gospel and being persecuted, and they needed some help. John, in the book of 2 John, actually talks about that to a degree, and we'll have that study in a few weeks from now. And so, could he be referring to heavenly beings here? Well, sure. We have an example of that in the Old Testament taking place. Or could he just be referring to messengers of God's word? Well, that's also a possibility as well. It's hard to say who he's referring to here exactly, but the point remains the same. The point is, show hospitality. Be hospitable, especially to your brethren, because you never know who you might be helping. You might just be helping someone who's doing some good service for God. That's the point. Don't miss the point, okay? Now, he then goes on in verse 3 to give an exhortation about remembering those in prison. Remembering those in prison. Here again, I think he's talking about Christians. Christians who have been locked up for the cause of the gospel because of their faith. We are familiar with the fact that Paul was somebody who was locked up for the cause of the gospel. Paul was somebody who spent time in prison because he preached the gospel. And unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of Christians deserted Paul. And they were ashamed of Paul because he was a prisoner for the cause of Christ. Now, Timothy wasn't ashamed of Paul. Luke wasn't ashamed of Paul. Mark wasn't ashamed of Paul. But there were some who deserted Paul while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And here the Hebrew writer is saying that, that they didn't need to have that kind of attitude. They didn't need to be ashamed of their brethren who were suffering in prison for the cause of the truth. Instead of being ashamed of those brethren, they needed to remember them. They needed to visit them, be there for them, serve those brethren in any way that they, can, any way that they could. And so there's an exhortation about remembering those in prison, probably in prison specifically because of their faith at this time. And then he says some things about marriage in verse 4. He says that as Christians, another way to properly respond to the superiority of Jesus is to behave properly in our marriages. He says that marriage is to be held in honor among all. I like that language because it shows me that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is an honorable thing, and it is honorable among all. That means all mankind. God made marriage to benefit all mankind. All mankind, whether you are a Christian or not, you are bound by God's law for marriage. So often people say, well, God's law for marriage only applies to Christians. Absolutely not, my friend. Marriage is honorable among all. God made one marriage law, and it is for all people. All mankind are bound. Is bound by God's law for marriage, and God expects the marriage relationship to be undefiled. In other words, he expects it to be pure, to be holy. He expects sexual union to only exist between a husband and his wife. It is to be between a husband and a wife. If it's any time marriage or, or sex goes outside of marriage, it is a sin. In fact, the writer emphasizes that point 
when he says there are two groups of people that God is going to judge. He's going to judge fornicators, and he's going to judge people who commit adultery. Who are the fornicators? Well, the fornicators are those who have sex and they're not married, and the adulterers are those who, who have sex and they are married, but they are having sex with somebody who's not their spouse. God doesn't take kindly to fornicators and adulterers. Sex is created by God. It is a good thing, but it is only good and holy when it is kept in the marriage bed. That's what the Hebrew writer says. So let's behave properly in our marriages. Let's behave honorably in our relationships with our spouse. And then fifthly, he also gives an exhortation about not loving money. Don't love money. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 10, Paul says that the love of money is what? It is the root of, of all sorts of evil. You know, so often this verse is misquoted. So often people say money is the root of all evil. No, my friends, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money can, can cause us to do all kinds of ungodly things. We read about this also throughout the Bible. Judas betrayed Jesus because he loved money. 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus for money. Gehazi, a servant of Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 5, he deceived Naaman the Syrian. He deceived him because he was greedy. He was covetous. He wanted money. And as a result of that, he got struck with leprosy. And then Simon the sorcerer, he loved money also. In Acts chapter 8, we can read about him trying to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. Just be, You don't have to be rich to love money. Poor people can also love money. Poor people can also have greedy and covetous hearts. And the Bible says that if we are Christians, it doesn't matter if we are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if we're upper class, lower class, or middle class. We don't need to have covetous hearts. We don't need to be greedy. We don't need to love money. Instead, we need to learn to be content. We need to be content with the blessings that God has provided us with our life, in our lives. We need to be content with the fact that we have shelter, we have food, we have clothing, we have the essential things we need to survive. Instead of being greedy and covetousness, the Bible says we need to be thankful. And we need to trust God. We need to learn to trust that if we just do what God says, he'll make sure we have everything we need to survive in this life. And so there is a warning against loving money and an admonition to trust God and be content. And then a sixth thing he mentions in verse number seven is he says, remember those who've led and spoke the word of God to you. Remember those who led and spoke the word of God to you. He says you need to imitate these people. Imitate those people who have led you spiritually and taught you the word of God. Who is he talking about there? Well, in the immediate context, when it came to these, Christ to these Christians, he's probably talking about apostles. He's talking about prophets. He's talking about preachers and teachers. These were People, no doubt, who contributed to, to these Hebrew Christians coming to the Lord. 
He says, remember the people who helped bring you to God, who led you, who taught you the scriptures. Remember the apostles. Remember the preachers. Remember the prophets. I got to tell you, it is interesting to find this admonition here, especially when you consider how just two chapters ago, he gave us this great list of people who in the time of the Old Testament had great faith. Remember, he brought up Abraham and Joseph and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab and Sarah and Moses. He, he told them just two chapters ago to learn from those people and imitate those people. And now here he says this, he gives the same admonition, but only he's talking. He's talking about a different group of people. He's not talking about people that they did not know personally here. Instead, he's talking about people that they did know personally. People who lived in their time and helped bring them to Jesus and helped ground them in the faith. He says, in addition to those in the hall of faith, also remember those people you know personally who helped, who helped you get to where you are today. Remember those people. And let me just ask you, do you have any people like that in your life? Can you think of some people in your life who introduced you to the truth, who helped bring you to Jesus, who baptized you, who grounded you in the truth, who encouraged you and may even be continue, continuing to encourage you. Do you have people like that who led you to Jesus, who spoke the word of God to you? Do you have people like that? I'm pretty sure you do. It could be your spouse. It could be a preacher. It could be an elder. It could be a Christian that you encountered on your job who invited you to church and then had Bible studies with you and eventually baptized you. I'm pretty sure that we all have some people who have led us and spoke the word of God to us. If we do, we don't need to forget about those people. We need to remember those people and be inspired by those people. And even follow in the footsteps of those people because those are good Christian people. Those people worthy of our imitation. That's what the Bible says. Remember those who've helped you get come to Jesus. And then in verse 8, he says, remember Jesus. <laughs> remember that while the world changes, we live in a world that is constantly changing. Jesus never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is always going to be Jesus. People may let you down. People may betray you. People may break your heart, but Jesus will never break your heart. Jesus will never be unfaithful to you. He will be constant. He'll always be the same. Who he is today is exactly who he's going to be tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and every day of your life. Remember those who brought you to God, but most importantly, remember Jesus. When you get discouraged, remember your Lord is faithful. And then in verse number nine, we have an exhortation about not being carried away by strange doctrines in regards to food. There's a lot I could say about that verse, but just for now, I want to suggest that the reference to food here is probably a reference to the dietary laws that were found under the old covenant. If you remember, for the people of Israel, 
who lived under the old covenant. They had all kinds of, of dietary restrictions. They were given to them by God. And even as the new covenant was, was being ushered in, there was still a lot of debate, even among Hebrew Christians, in regards to those those dietary laws, but the point I think the Hebrew writer is making here is don't get bogged down in these debates about food. Don't get bogged down with, with the restrictions that were given under the old law in regards to food because those restrictions don't exist under the new covenant. You see, under the new covenant, God wants his people to be more concerned with grace, the grace of God, and not food. Just be thankful when you eat God's food. Don't get into these debates about dietary restrictions because we don't live under the old law. Instead, focus on the grace of God. Those are the exhortations that are found in the first nine verses. Now let's pick up with verse 10. After mentioning the food he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, though he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not, we do not have a lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come. And that is a clear reference to heaven. Verse 15, through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with the word of ex bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. All right, let me just say a few things about this section here, and then that's going to be our study. First, I want you to notice, I want you to notice how in verses 10 through 14, verses 10 through 14, this section here is an interesting section because it appears that in this section, the Hebrew writer is making one final comparison between aspects of the old and new covenants. Here in these verses, he makes a final appeal for these Christians or to these Christians not to leave Jesus and his covenant to go back and living under the old covenant by mentioning the sacrifices, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system that was given under the old covenant compared to the one given under the, under the new covenant. Now, after mentioning 
in verse 9, if you remember, after mentioning the food of the old covenant, the writer then in verse 10 talks about the animals that were offered under the old covenant. You see, under the old covenant, if you recall, the priest who ministered at the tabernacle, they were allowed to eat, eat some of the meat that came from the sacrifices. They were allowed to eat some of the meat that was offered on the altar at the tabernacle, but the Hebrew writer says that even though they, the priests under the old covenant, were allowed to eat from the altar under the old covenant, they're not allowed to eat from the altar that's under the new covenant. They're not allowed to eat from our altar. Our altar is a far more superior altar than the altar they had under the old covenant. See, the only ones who can eat from the altar under the new covenant are those who've been made priests today. And when you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 down to verse number 10, you see that those who are priests today are Christians, disciples. 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse number 9, Peter says, but you, talking about Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Notice how you are a Christian, if you are a disciple, if you are a member of the Lord's church, then you, my friend, have been made a priest. Jesus is the high priest who ministers in the true holy place, which is in heaven, and we are his priest. We've been made a priesthood, a royal priesthood, and we are able to eat from the altar in which he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The idea of eating from the altar is not talking about a literal eating from the altar. Instead, it is talking about a spiritual, a spiritual partaking. We're able to partake of all of the benefits and all the blessings that come from his sacrifice that was made at Calvary. We're able to eat from the altar, the true altar, the altar of Jesus, an altar that is far better than the altar that the priests ministered at under the old covenant. Now, Brother Don Johnson wrote an article about this verse, verse 10, and I, I recommend that you read it because it is very good. But for now, due to the limited time I have, I just want to emphasize the point that as priests of God under the new covenant, we are able to eat from the altar of Jesus. We're able to partake of the blessings that come from his sacrifice that is far superior to that which the priest did under the old covenant. So we're partaking from a far better altar. And then in verses 11 through 14, after telling us that there were certain sacrifices that the priests were allowed to eat under the old covenant, he then tells us that there were certain sacrifices that they were not allowed to eat. There were certain sacrifices that were forbidden from the priests eating of, and an example of that can, can be found in the sacrifice that was offered on the Day of Atonement. You see, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the holy and most holy place and he offered sacrifices for his sins and the sins of the people, instead of eating from those sacrifices, they had to be burned outside the camp. They were not allowed to eat the sin offering that was given on the Day of Atonement. 
those sacrifices had to be burned outside of the camp. And that actually foreshadowed what would take place in Jesus. In a similar way, just like the sin offering that was found under the old covenant, Jesus was a sacrifice a sin sacrifice who was also put to death outside of the camp. He was put to death at Golgotha, which is outside of the city of Jerusalem. He also was put to death outside of the camp. And the Hebrew writer says that if we want to be partakers of the benefits of his sacrifice, then guess where we got to go? We got to go outside the camp. We got to go where he is, and that is outside of the camp, outside of the city of Jerusalem. I believe that is a reference to leaving Judaism and turning to him and his covenant. If you want to get to Jesus, you're not going to get to him and the benefits of his sacrifice by being under Judaism. Instead, you got to go outside the camp. You got to go outside of Jerusalem. You got to go outside of the temple system, and you got to serve him and be under his covenant. Jesus outside the camp, and that's where we got to go. The point is that under the new covenant, we have a better sacrifice. We got a better altar. We got a better camp or city that has been, that, that is waiting for us, the city of God, heaven. Everything we have under the new covenant is superior to those things found under the old. In fact, those things that are found under the old were only designed to foreshadow the blessings we would have under the new covenant. And so whatever reproaches these Christians needed to endure and whatever reproaches and persecutions we have to endure to be faithful to Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it because Jesus, who was sacrificed outside of the city of Jerusalem, is the only way to heaven. No other way is going to cut it. And then, keeping with the theme of sacrifices, in verses 15 through 25, the Hebrew writer makes the point that while we don't have to offer animal sacrifices as Christians because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, we do have to offer some sacrifices. What sacrifice do we have to offer? Well, verse 15 says the sacrifice of our lips. The sacrifice of our lips in praise to God, that's referring to our singing. Our singing together as the people of God, when we worship God, when we sing spiritual songs, when we praise God through the fruit of our lips, we're offering an acceptable sacrifice to God. In verse 16, he also says we, we need to do good and be ready to share with one another. He says that with those kinds of sacrifices, good works, and a sharing attitude, God is pleased with that. He also says we need to obey our leaders and submit to them. Who are the leaders that he is talking about there? Well, if you look at verse 17 very carefully, he tells us who he's talking about there. He says these leaders that he's making reference to are those who keep watch over your souls, those who will have to give, to give an account for your soul. That's talking about the elders of the local church. The shepherds, the bishops, these men have a responsibility to watch out for the flock of God. 
to watch over our souls, to build us up, to feed us, to lead us. These are the men who have met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. They have authority in the local church, and God says we must obey our leaders and submit to them. When the scripture says submit to elders, my friends, and listen carefully, when the scripture says we are to submit to elders, it is talking about submitting to them and matters of judgment. You see, when we go to a scripture and just do what a scripture says, when we do what Matthew 19 says in regards to marriage, divorce and remarriage, when we do what the scripture says in regards to the acts of worship, and when the scripture, what the scripture says in regards to how we treat one another, we're not submitting to the elders when we obey Bible passages. In that case, we're submitting to God. God is the, is the lawgiver. But when the scripture says we are to submit to elders, it's talking about submitting to them in matters of judgment. God has given elders or shepherds the ability to make judgments in the local church, and we don't need to give them a hard time when they make those judgment calls. As long as their judgment calls don't go outside of the law of God, we must submit to them. It could be a judgment call in regards to how often we meet to worship God on Sunday, the times we meet to worship God on Sunday. When are we going to take the Lord's Supper? Before the sermon? After the sermon? Who are they going to hire to be the preacher? Do we build a new facility or not? What are we going to learn in our Bible classes? Who are going to be the teachers of those classes? You see, so often there are, there are judgment calls that have to be made in our work together, and God has given the elders the responsibility and the authority to make those judgment calls, and we need to submit to their, to their judgment. God says that if we give the elders a hard time in the church, if we make their work miserable, it's not going to be good for us when we stand before him on the judgment day. We need to submit to the leaders that God has chosen. And then in verses 18 through 19, he requests prayers from these brethren. He requests prayers to be restored to them soon. That language there may imply to us that the writer of this book, whoever it is, he was in prison at this time. In verses 20 through 25, he then says a prayer for them. He requests prayers, and then he makes a prayer. He, he, he prays that they may be equipped for every good work, that they may be pleasing in God's sight, and that they would bear with this word. This word, the book of Hebrews, bear with this word of exhortation. Take very seriously this letter that he wrote to them. And then in verses 23 through 24, I think the language there shows us a couple of things. It shows us that the writer probably knew these Christians on a very personal level. He says he was going to come see them when he was released. And then I think we also see that the writer here knew Timothy. He says Timothy was going to be released soon. So the writer knew these Christians, and he also knew Timothy. And so that's pretty much a summary of chapter 13. The final admonitions I want to give you as I wrap up this video is don't forget the main point of this book. Stick with Jesus. Don't leave him. Stick with him. He's the only way to heaven. Two, stick with his covenant. I know those things are connected, but I want to emphasize it separately. Stick with Jesus. Stick with his covenant. 
Nothing wrong with studying from the Old Covenant. Nothing wrong with learning from the Old Covenant. But understand that the Old Covenant is not the binding covenant upon Christians. The New Covenant is the covenant that has been instituted by Jesus. That is the covenant that is to govern our lives. That is the, one of the big points of Hebrews and one of the big points of the whole New Testament. Stick with Jesus, stick with his covenant, and then thoroughly walk in faith. Remember, without faith, you can't please God. The people who are going to be in heaven have one important thing in common, and that is they're people of faith. And so walk in faith and go with Jesus. Thank you for this studying with me this morning.